Blog Talk Radio. Hi there, this is Kim Hopkins standing in for Dr. Ross Green, who's traveling in Toronto today. He's doing advanced training for clinicians and practitioners there. It's a two-day training. He's excited to be doing that. Uh, It's time for another edition of Parenting Your Challenging Child. We do this podcast the first Tuesday of the month, September through May at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We do our best to help you with your behaviorally challenging child, help you figure out what's going on, and help you to figure out some things that are going to work. Our call-in number is 347-994-2981. Give us a call if you want to ask some questions. uh, Press 1 to get on to the show. I think I'm going to be joined by B-Team parent leader Jennifer. Um, She had let me know she'd be joining us today. I'm not seeing her on the switchboard yet, but hopefully she'll get with us when she can. Uh, In the meantime, we have lots of emails, and definitely call in if you have a question. Uh, I want to make folks aware of a couple things that that are fairly new uh, for us. Um, The first is our documentary, The Kids We Lose. Hopefully you've heard about it at this point. Um, But we're able to now have uh, organizations organize community screenings of the documentary, and a lot of folks have been asking how that can happen. Uh, And just to be clear, it's not in widespread distribution yet because we're still waiting to hear back from um, some various film festivals as to whether or not we've been accepted. Um, And that is we're being told a a route we really do want to go. We were in the New Hampshire Film Festival in Portsmouth in October, and we did win... um, best documentary, which is exciting. So we're waiting to hear back from some other film festivals before we decide the best route for wide distribution. But in the meantime, um, if you're located in an area where we have not applied for a film festival, you can organize a screening. So we're inviting folks who might have connections to organizations that have the ability to um, host a screening to be in touch with us. Um, You can get in touch with us a couple of ways. The Kids We Lose has its own website. It's thekidswelose.com, and there's a contact us uh, form on there. There's also now a screenings page where we will list the screenings that are open to the public. Um, You could also email uh, the great Liz Redman, who um, is our jack-of-all-trades and handles tons of stuff behind the scenes, um, at liz at livesinthebalance.org, and she'll answer any questions you have. So, Um, The other thing I wanted to make sure to let people know about is a fairly new page on our website. Um, We now have an advocator page. So if you're interested in helping us to heighten the awareness of the counterproductive, inhumane disciplinary practices that are commonly applied to behaviorally challenging kids uh, and help us to change things for the better, check out our advocacy page. So if you go to livesinthebalance.org, you can, right now it's listed under our highlights, it's the first thing, um, because it's brand new, but, or you could go to livesinthebalance.org slash advocators, um, and then you'll see 
that there's lots of different things you can do regardless of your role. Um, things that everybody can do, things that parents can do, things that educators can do, things that other professionals can do um, to help us. So, uh, so join us. And uh, as Dr. Green said to me the other day, 2019 is the year of the advocator. So Lives in the Balance is really going to be focusing on um, what types of advocacy we can help with, uh, gearing up volunteers to help us with that effort, and uh, starting to make some changes. So um, all fueled by the kids we lose and the phenomenal families that gave up their time for that documentary uh, and the amazing impact it's having. So. Um, okay, well, that's it for, for my announcements. I'm not seeing any callers. Again, hopefully Jennifer will join us. I know Stella can't make it today, um, but, po but possibly next month we'll have her on. So in the meantime, we can get some emails going. We do have a backlog of emails, so let's get into those. All right, our first email says, I greatly appreciate the work you do toward helping families that are struggling with chronically inflexible children. My husband and I have two children, one son age eight with ADHD and a daughter who is age four. Our son does struggle somewhat with time management and focus. Our primary concern is our daughter. And because of this concern, I suspect that she is ADHD with a high level of anger reflective of ODD. My husband and I are reading the explosive child and we're in the process of completing the alpha to help her develop skills in predictable problem areas, thereby reducing challenging behavior. At this point in time, we understand the importance of identifying unsolved problems and applying plan B to help build collaborative solutions to eliminate these problems. However, as we do this, we struggle with great difficulty around how to manage those moments when my daughter's anger takes over. We're highly concerned as she becomes so dysregulated that she will rapidly escalate to spitting, hitting, kicking, biting, verbal abuse, I hate you, you're stupid, and running away. I understand that the primary focus of CPS is not on challenging behavior, but how do we appropriately respond to these behaviors when they occur? We know that responding to challenging behaviors with timeouts, ignoring, <clears throat> excuse me, and behavior charts do not work. We've tried. I do worry that if we don't set consequences or limits for these behaviors, it signals to her that this is an effective way to manage her anger. Along the same thread, I do understand that she is doing the best she can and is in need of skill development. Towards skill development, I've been consistently trying to support her in regulating her emotions. I'm doing this through coaching her with cue cards, but she attempts to rip the cards and continues to act aggressively. I've also, also tried a sensory box or quiet space, but that's been difficult when we're in public. So while we're in the process of helping her to develop skills with CPS, how do we also manage and address abusive behaviors when they do occur? Oh, I'm getting a message from Jennifer that's saying that I can't see her. She is called in, but somehow I can't see her. I don't know what the glitch is, um, but she is not showing up on my call list here, which is a real bummer. <laughs> We certainly love having her on the show. Um, maybe she'll keep trying and something will change here. Um, back to the email then. Let's keep switching screens. Okay, so I'm real happy you found us. And it certainly does sound like you have a great understanding of some of the basics of the model, which is fantastic. 
and it's certainly, and I, we know a lot of parents, we see, you know, we, we see the 20,000 members, nearly 20,000 members on the B team on our Facebook group talking about similar situations. Um, one thing, there's many things I'd like to kind of talk about in here. Um, the first is that I found the most interesting when you were talking about I worry if we don't set consequences or limits, it signals to her that this is an effective way to manage her anger. I would say that that's uh, something that a lot of folks worry about. Um, and I would also say that there are ways for you to teach her that it's not an effective way to manage her anger without a consequence, right? In fact, even at the young age of five, I'm pretty sure she's gotten the message that the hitting and the kicking and the biting and all of that is not okay. Um, so I would suggest that you keep in mind that she's not doing those behaviors because she thinks it's okay or she thinks it's an effective way to manage her anger. She's got nothing better, right? And so you, if you choose not to do the traditional approach, you know, does she have to feel it to know that, um, consequences, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, does, if, does she have to feel it to know that those behaviors are not okay? Um, I don't think so. I think she already knows. You've already taught her that. You've taught her right from wrong. So I don't think she gets that signal at all, you know. And remember, we always talk about this, you know, those behaviors are so hard for parents, absolutely. And that kid is suffering even more. Because she knows, she looks around and she sees that you know, perhaps even her own sibling isn't doing this stuff, or friends are not doing it, or cousins who have other kids she's around. They're not doing these things necessarily, you know. So she, she suffers the most. Life is not going well for her, especially because she's on, you know, the um, little bit higher end of the spectrum of looking bad, like we call it, um, with the hitting and the kicking and the biting and, and all of that. You know, life's not going good, good for her, and she's pretty well aware of that. Um, so I would definitely try to keep in mind that um, you're not signaling to her that this is an effective way to manage her anger. Just going to check back to see if I can get Jennifer in on here. Uh, no, I'm still not seeing her, unfortunately. I do not know what the technical glitch is here. Um, anyhow, back to the email. So... Another question, which you seem to be asking that we do get a lot, is while, because we can't work on everything all at once, and we're not waving a magic wand here, right, and we're not able to take care of everything as fast as we would like it to, we still have these behaviors popping up. The, the premise of the model, and it sounds like you've, you've done a nice job of um, completing the LSIP, is to do a very complete LSIP. Um, any unsolved problem that is not on there represents a potential surprise, right? So getting that complete LSIP in place, um, making sure you know what you're working on, and everybody is on the same page about what you're working on, a couple, you know, one or two, maybe three unsolved problems. And then what's left that might need a proactive plan C? What's left that might need a Band-Aid plan you know, some things you might just not bring up because they're smaller fish, but some are still kind of big fish, and you might feel as though you can't just not bring it up, uh, but you're not working on it. So what's the Band-Aid going to be? And it's an agreed upon, a mutually agreed upon Band-Aid plan so that it doesn't feel like plan A. Um, 
you know, we're not working on um, you getting your homework done because we have so many other things going on. And so um, in the meantime, you know, what we'll do is what do you think if we talk to your teacher and explain what's happening and, you know, let them know that we're going to get to homework, it's important, but right now we have other things. You know, some sort of mutually agreed upon plan that sort of circumvents the unsolved problem temporarily. Um, so lots of uh, proactive B that's planful on your high priority unsolved problems. Plan C proactively, band-aid plans if you need them. And then if you still find yourself in the midst of the hitting and the kicking and the spitting and all of that escalation, your goal is to keep things safe. That's your goal. Your goal is to keep things safe. I would also say if you can do it while keeping that relationship intact, all the better. Um, but you got to keep things safe. You know, um, I wouldn't be, again, worried in those moments that you've got to tell her what she's currently doing is not okay. I think you're pretty safe in the knowledge that she already knows that. Um, so I don't think you have to worry in the moment to do that. You do have pro, uh, sorry, emergency B at your disposal if you do think that could help, which would be, and I always tell people, like, don't focus on trying to get through all three steps with emergency B. We're not trying to teach anything here. We're just trying to return back to baseline and try to keep this relationship intact. You know, I see you're having a really hard time, and you pour on the empathy, and you try to understand, you know, I'd like to be helpful. Um, I, I really, it's hard for me to help if I don't understand, you know. Sometimes um, that's enough, you know, to bring kids around. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes it doesn't work for some kids, and it's better not to say anything at all. But depending on how you think she might respond, you have that too. But lots of messages are, you're not in trouble. I know you're doing the best you can. I'm here, you know, um, followed by whatever it is you might like to try. Um, I know you had mentioned that you've tried some, I'm trying to find it back here, um, cue cards and let's talk about the cue cards and the quiet space. Those tend to be interventions that are focused a little too far downstream, like already when she's experiencing the upset to try to regulate it and bring her back. We find that we get farther with kids when we focus much further upstream and preventing the upset from being felt in the first place. Um, so hopefully that was enough to kind of get you over this hump that you're describing. Um, certainly would love to hear back from you via email or calling into the, to the show to let us know how it's going. All right. I'm still not seeing Jennifer here. Uh, I, sorry, Jennifer, I know you're listening, and I'm sorry that I can't, I can't see you or any other caller. So if any callers are calling in, I, the switchboard is telling me there is no one. And you know what's interesting? Usually my own phone number that I'm calling in from shows up on the list, and that's not showing up either. So no idea what's happening today, but my apologies. Certainly would love to have you involved. Okay, let's keep going here. Lots and lots of emails. Okay. This parent writes, we're trying to use CPS to get our 15-year-old son to take breaks from cell phone use. I bet a lot of folks listening are um, <laughs> nodding in agreement that that would be an unsolved problem that they're working on at home too. 
we can't even get them off the phone to have these conversations. Our therapist says the phone is soothing to him, and we need to get at what his need for soothing is. But when we do get him off the phone by making him leave it at home for a trip to get fast food, he becomes a pleasant, conversant person. We see every evidence of addiction, which makes it that much harder for implementing CPS. What do you suggest? Our therapist recommends CPS, but it is not helpful in how we have the conversation. Let's see here. I'm sorry, but Jennifer is, is letting me know that she's in the queue, but I, again, am not seeing anybody. Oh, that's really too bad. Uh, so the, the almighty cell phone, super seductive. My kids are young. They're eight and three, almost three, three this week. Um, I don't look forward to, um, <laughs> to having to have this conversation. <laughs> uh, I saw a post on my local parents group of folks who have older kids saying, you know, when are people doing the cell phone thing? Is anybody going to wait till at least eighth grade? Cause I'm seeing kids much younger walk around with them. And it, it frankly makes my head spin. Um, and so, you know, we often say that things like cell phones and things like video games, those screens are just so seductive and they are very challenging on cell problems to take on. Um, and kudos to parents who are, who are doing it because it is certainly tough. Doable, but really, really tough. Um, incidentally, we do have a two-minute video on our website and I can tell you exactly where those are. If you go under Outreach, their fourth link down is two-minute videos, and we do have one about um, screen time conflicts. It's just brief, but it can sometimes be grounding, <clears throat> excuse me, again, to um, just sort of hear it over again. Um, so one thing, let's kind of starting. We can't even get them off the phone to have these conversations, and it does seem like with the carrot of fast food, you can, right? So, um, and again, that, I, that is not a long-term solution for sure. Um, that's a carrot, and we, you know, for us, we know that carrots kind of can get you some uh, mileage in the short term but tend not to get the long-term solved, right? Um, but it does make me, knowing that that can happen, it does make me think that there could be a way to um, make an appointment with him, um, and, you know, it might have to involve fast food right now. I don't know. But make an appointment with him, uh, and it sounds like you do get some talking going when he's away from the phone. Um, and then, you know, make the best use of that time. The one thing I would say is if you have carved down an hour together and he's not on the phone because he's left it at home and you're enjoying fast food together, um, the pressure might feel on to um, – to feel like you have to get it solved in that hour. And again, CPS is not magic. The goal is to make headway in that hour. You know, the goal is to communicate to him that you're not interested in essentially doing plan A. How might you say that to him? You know, we're not going to say you can't use it. Um, we're not saying you have to give it up. We're not, we're not telling you what to do around the phone. Um, because in plan B, you're not. And I would say, 
lots of reassurance. I say this on the show a lot, but um, I can't say it enough. Lots of reassurance that um, plan A isn't, uh, I'm sorry, lots of reassurance that you're not doing plan A, whatever that might sound like for you, over and over and over again. You know, I'll have folks say, well, I told him at the beginning of the conversation that he wasn't in trouble. And I would say, and I've, I've heard it over and over again, you really need to revisit it, especially with older kids, um, until they really trust the process. So the goal being making sure that you're letting him know you're not doing plan A, that you're trying to think about him differently, that you bet he has some fantastic reasons for using that phone. You know, the therapist mentioned one potential, right? Um, but that he might have some great reasons for using it, and you're not interested in telling him what to do. You would like to understand from him instead of taking guesses about, you know, what it's about, you know. And, again, I would start with, again, another thing we talk about a lot on here, a very clear unsolved problem. Um, know what your expectation is. So difficulty getting off your cell phone is not quite clear in terms of what your expectation is, so it's not quite specific enough. If your expectation is that he only used the cell phone four hours a day, um, and again, I'm not telling you that's what it should be, but I'm just as an example, um, then it would be difficulty sticking to the four-hour-a-day cell phone use or difficulty only using your cell phone for four hours a day or difficulty getting off your cell phone to come to dinner. Maybe you'd go about it that route. Um, but you want to be pretty specific in what your expectation is. We often know what we don't like, um, but sometimes it takes a little thought to figure out what we do like and, and to say it clearly. So clearly stating your expectation. Um, so letting him know that this is not plan A and that you really would like to get from him, you know, his perspective on, this, on the very specific unsolved problem you laid out. You really want to know, and you're going to take your time to know, all the while assuring him that you're not going to tell him what to do. When it's time for step two, you'll tell him what your worries are, and your worries need to be taken into account, just like his perspective does, for a solution to have a chance of being durable. Um, we had a, because we have this technical issue going on, I saw a Facebook message come through from Heather, one of our other uh, parent partners, with the B team, and she said, CPS by text. <laughs> um, and I've seen a lot of posts on the B team where parents have gotten some great information from their kids on unsolved problems that they haven't understood before uh, by using text and, and having the screens work for them. So that would be a, another potential avenue. Um, Certainly getting the conversation to start, especially with teens, can be tough. They um, potentially have had lots and lots of plan A. They're, they're, they might um, have some distrust of adults and that kind of thing. Just, that, you know, sometimes teens see adults as standing between them and the things they love, right? Um, so creating that partnership, assuring them it's not plan A, those are all going to be some really important foundational elements to lay um, and again, kudos for taking on such a tough, unsolved problem. Um, again, we'd love to know how it goes. We always love to have updates from folks um, when they write or call in. We still are not having any luck with our switchboard here. It's still telling me there's no callers. 
I have absolutely no idea what that's about. <laughs> um, again, I wish I could. I know Jennifer set aside the time to be with us today and from work, but I would um, – and Jennifer's messaging me in, too. She would add, if she were here, that um, even teenagers can benefit from the five-finger method that we talk about on this show a lot um, in taking some guesses. Um, <laughs> and Heather's saying, use five fingers by gif. <laughs> um, the five-finger method, just for those who haven't heard us talk about it before, is where you take some guesses about what the kid's perspective on the unsolved problem could be, and they use five fingers to rate your guesses, one being your way off, five being your spot on. And you say things like, it's difficult for you to put your phone down to come to dinner because you're worried you're going to miss out on something with your friends. Uh, it's difficult for you to come to dinner, uh, to put your phone down to come to dinner because um, your friend that you're talking with lives in a different time zone, doesn't have to go to dinner, and if you end the conversation, um, you won't be able to talk to them for a while. It was actually a kid's concern I heard on a recording just the other day. Um, so the five-finger method, it's, it's great, works for teens too, just like with younger kids. Um, we often talk about it uh, as a way to help kids who might not have the language to let you know their concern, but it can also be useful for teens who have the language but might be a little distrustful of the process at the beginning. Um, and we have some other uh, radio programs on the five-finger method that you could look up to if you want more information on that. Um, this is kind of fun where we're getting input from folks via Facebook um, since our call-in line is not working. Uh, <laughs> it's kind of fun. Uh, so let's keep going. We've got some time left here. Okay. Um, some of this actually might be similar to, um, to what the other email was. I wanted to start by saying I've been great, grateful to the CPS model. It's not only changed the way I teach, but has made me more aware of how I build and keep relationships in general. I'm quite new still to this way of thinking. I've attended a full-day course and read the book Raising Human Beings, and I hope to educate myself further. I'm a preschool teacher. I work in a Montessori mixed-age classroom that spans from ages three to six years old. I found a lot of success in the model when I'm working with older children, but I've hit some roadblocks with the younger students. When there is an immediate uh, something that needs immediate attention, how would you approach it? Some examples, again, we've got hitting, destroying materials, screaming, throwing a tantrum, running away from caregivers, throwing food and silverware. I do start by stating the expectation. Example, please don't hit, we need to be gentle. However, if the behavior doesn't stop, that's when it gets hard for me. I have tried the emergency plan B model, but I found it tricky to implement. I'm afraid that there's a lack of understanding when I use so many words with the young children especially when emotions are running hot. Is there a simpler format that uses fewer words I could try or any other suggestions? Um, there's more questions as well. In the cases where someone might get hurt, how should I approach it? I know that isolation is a plan A option. However, there are times that a screaming or violent student can become a distraction or danger to others. What should I do at those times? Also, what should I do when the expectation is not an option? For example, a child does not want to go outside with the rest of the class, but we don't have staffing to allow for this. 
Uh, how can I collaborate with a child in a way that they feel heard but the expectations still met? Lots of great questions in here. Let's um, start at the top. So fun to have a teacher write in and to talk about the, the younger group, three to six years old. Um, the first question is, when a behavior issue needs immediate attention, how would you approach it? And again, similar behaviors to what the um, parent in the first email was talking about. Um, some pretty serious stuff. So the person who emailed says, I start by stating the expectation. Example, please don't hit, we need to be gentle. That's actually doing emergency plan A. So even if it's very nice, restating the expectation is doing emergency plan A. My guess is that even the three-year-olds know that they shouldn't hit or they shouldn't throw silverware, right? Um, and so that, what we know about doing plan A, even though it's super nice, is that plan A um, makes challenging kids look worse often. It, it causes what we call incompatibility episodes the clash of the two forces. When the environment makes a demand and the kid doesn't have the skill to meet the demand, we have the clash of the two forces or an incompatibility episode and the kid lands on the spectrum of looking bad. And so if we go in with emergency plan A, we can actually make them look even worse than they're looking currently. Um, so I wouldn't even, if you, if you don't need to, right, and I'll clarify that in a second, I wouldn't go in with emergency A. If you have the abilities, meaning nobody's getting hurt right in front of your eyes, then I would try emergency plan B. Now, I know you said that there's so many words. I would use less words for sure. Um, I would have some couple of words that communicates, you know, um, I'm still with you here. I don't think you're a bad kid. If you can fill me in, great. So something that communicates that, right? Like, you're having a hard time. It's okay. I'm with you. We'll figure it out together. That's what I would sort of go for. I haven't even asked a question yet, right? I'm just basically saying, because sometimes telling kids I'm not going to plan AU is enough to bring them down a bit, right, to have something more meaningful happen or just to return them to baseline so you can move on. Um, so I would focus on that and not even the questions. You might decide that if you could get a little information, like if you have no idea where this came from and it would help you to know so that you could make an adjustment to get them through this, um, then I would say, fill me in. What happened? Let's see. Um, are you hurt? Did somebody upset you? Like, so you could take a couple of guesses and have them five-finger it or thumbs up, thumbs down even, you know, if you needed a bit of information to help them get back to baseline. But again, often when kids realize that they're not going to get plan aid and that everything's okay even though this big thing happened, um, that often can <clears throat> bring them back down and back to baseline. So just a couple clarifications there about what emergency B would sound like. Um, you did mention in the cases where someone might get hurt. So, it, so I mentioned this. I said I'd go back to it. Imminent risk of danger. Someone is about to get hurt, the kid or the, themselves or somebody else, right? It's happening right in front of you. Um, 
that's when you might need to use plan A to restore safety, right? I would give thought to what imminent is and your threshold for um, understanding risk. I had a uh, thinking of a classroom teacher, younger kids who said to me, you know, when, when he starts climbing furniture, that's when, you know, that's imminent risk of danger. He could fall. And I said, so you're, you're going to put hands on the kid to take him off the furniture and then hold him because restraints are used in that school. And that's less risky than him possibly falling off a little bit of you know, furniture that's not even that high. You know, and they were like, oh, that, that gave them some food for thought about threshold for risk. Um, certainly in school settings, I think that educators get worried about um, absorbing too much risk. Um, there's often a lot of plan A happening to educators about that stuff. And so sometimes we need to have some discussions with administrators, with um, parents and the kids team around how much risk are we going to absorb together <laughs> because we would like the imminent risk to really mean imminent. Um, that somebody is about to get hurt. If you do use plan A because there's imminent risk um, that somebody is going to get hurt, um, what I would say is that, and I, you know, I worked in residential before I had kids, and I, we used plan A in very creative, awful ways before we found this model. Um, and so today, if I had to use plan A in a safety situation, I would not pretend that it was going to not make it happen again. You know, back in the day, I used to think, well, you know, we restrained that kid or we called the police or now he's had charges, so he'll never do that again. No. Plan A does nothing to teach skills. All it did was return safety and meet the adult's concern, right? Um, so if you have to use emergency plan A because there's imminent risk of danger, uh, just know that you're going to need another plan um, if you don't want that to happen again. You'll have to go back with proactive plan B, hopefully. The other thing is that plan A, whether emergent or proactive, uh, the relationship takes a hit because it's not a partnership, right? And if you're trying to use plan B, you're going to want to acknowledge to the kid what the plan A was and your version of knowing that um, it doesn't help. <laughs> uh, it probably didn't do, you know, didn't work for the kid. Um, you don't want to be doing that sort of thing. You understand that the kid might feel some type of way about you having done plan A, that there might have been a little hit to the trust you're trying to build. And kind of owning that, acknowledging that is very powerful um, with kids of all ages. I've had the honor of hearing lots of recordings of folks that I'm doing some coaching with in the model, um, having those restorative discussions um, so that they can get back to their plan B work when, when a major plan A happened. Um, let's see what else here. When the expectation's not an option. This is a topic I love hearing about, right? And so here's the thing, and your example was if the kid doesn't want to go outside with the rest of the class, but we don't have staffing to allow it. I believe it, right? You, you, you're under-resourced in that way or, you know, whatever it might be. Um, I'm with you on that. Here's the thing, though. If that kid pulls a complete nutty, right, and gets real unsafe and everything, that kid's probably not going outside, right? Um, and we don't want it to happen that way for sure, right? So sometimes when things look black and white, they're not. 
Um, you have a very valid concern, however, in that there's not staffing available, right? And so, um, and again, it sounds like I'm imagining that this is um, the kid who, in the heat of the moment, is saying, I'm not going outside. If it's, you know, because this is how they, you know, some uh, an unsolved problem happened and this is part of their, you know, how they're looking bad about it, um, unless it's something different and it's just uh, the kid doesn't like going outside and that's a, a chronic unsolved problem, it could be. Um, so, and Jennifer is chiming in via Facebook saying the empathy step might reveal that the problem is not being about outside. Um, and unless you ask, you don't know, right? So I'm not sure if this is the kid's already kind of melting down or we call it like falling in the water and then is saying, and now I'm not going outside because it's just part of, their whole like presentation of how they look bad when an unsolved problem has happened that they couldn't handle, or is this a kid who just typically doesn't like to be outside? We're not sure. Um, so ideally, we're getting proactive around that, around all of these. Uh, you also give an outside of school example, a child that needs to get a shot at the doctor's office. Um, we get a lot of questions around medication and things that parents feel, rightly so, very strongly about, right? And um, bottom line is you're going to keep your kids safe, right? And if you're able to, and if you know, this is one that could be quite proactive, right? Because typically shots are scheduled, right? And so you would know in advance and um, this is actually something I do with my daughter every time she needs a shot, um, which lately has only been the annual flu shot. But, um, you know, and I'll, and I'll say, like, let's think about it. What's going to be hard about going to the doctors for, for that shot? You know, what's going to be tough about that? Um, and Heather's chiming in and saying that, that her family planned these vaccines, and it, actually, it absolutely works. The whole point is getting ahead of these things getting a solid ALSOP in place with your proactive, your predictable unsolved problems. If you know getting shots to the doctor is an unsolved problem, put it on there. If you know that going outside with the group at recess time is an unsolved problem, got to get on there, right? Then you have your list, complete list of unsolved problems so that you can prioritize what you're going to work on first, right? Um, certainly things around medications, things like that that are important for a child's health might rise to the top as one of your big fish that you're going to prioritize to work on first or close to that. Um, but, you know, the whole thing is, um, oh, Jennifer's given us a message here. Oh, it went away. <laughs> um, she says, we've talked about issues like shots where the actual thing has, has to happen, but we can plan B how it happens, which gives him back some control in the situation. And I would say when you're doing step two around a difficult issue like medication and shots, you want to be careful not to repeat the expectation, which would be, well, the thing is you have to have the shot. You would want to speak to your concern. Well, the thing is you could get real sick without it. Um, and that would be more doctor's appointments um, and missing school and missing fun things, you know. Um, well, the thing is you could end up so sick you're in the hospital, you know. So you want to speak to what the worry is rather than the have to, um, but absolutely. And, you know, how are we, you know, so then when you set up the step three, you know, how are you going, <laughs> Jennifer says, and it could lead to more shots. Yeah, how are you, when you set up step three for the, um, the invitation step, you know, I wonder if there's a way we can help you with 
and then you're going to insert what you learned from the kid. You know, um, I'm worried about the pain. I'm worried about not feeling well after whatever you get from the kid, right? In such a way that, and here's where my concern comes in or the adult concern comes in, you're not getting so sick that you need more doctor's appointments and more shots and possibly the hospital. How are we going to handle this? What are your ideas, right? So both sets of concerns have to be met. That's the key, you know. So I think that often we think that there are expectations that are hard and fast and have no movement around them. Um, and then, you know, when we sort of take a look at that and think through what our worries are, what our concerns are that drive the expectation, um, remember about being proactive and not trying to work on this in the midst of the expectation. But if we can predict that this is typically an expectation that this kid has trouble handling, um, then we can get ahead of it and we can use plan B so we don't have to be doing plan A in the moment. Um, I can recall a parent being in touch, saying, talking about regular medication that their child needs twice a day, every day to survive, and they're plan Aing it. And, I, you know, of course I don't blame them. <laughs> and in between doses, if they can start to chip away at using the empathy step and the drilling techniques, um, and just in case folks don't know, on our website under CPS Resources, there is a paperwork link where you can look at a cheat sheet for the three steps of Plan B. You can look at a drilling cheat sheet for how to ask questions uh, that are meaningful. Um, if we can use those skills to try to understand what's hard about taking that medication. Um, because if we get some information, then we're best positioned to help. And remember, one of the key themes of our model is that understanding comes before helping. So you really do want to understand. You really want to know. And so, you know, if it's a life and death situation, obviously you are going to plan A it. And if there's time in between, you're going to want to take away at plan B. And you're going to want to say to the kid, I don't want to be making you take this. That's not fun for any of us. And yet you do have really valid concerns as to why it's important, right? But I bet the kid has concerns too that are pretty uh, valid and worth hearing out and potentially quite solvable. We just, we just kind of got to get there. All right. We only have a couple minutes left and our switchboard is still not working. I apologize to anyone who tried to call in. Um, we hope to figure out what's going on with this so that we can fix it for next time. I should mention that next month, due to the way that the holidays are scheduled, we will not be meeting on the first Tuesday, which is January 1st, but we will be meeting on the second Tuesday on January 8th. So the podcast will air on January 8th instead of the first next month. And again, we hope to figure out what this technology glitch was here. Uh, let's see. In the last couple minutes, what else do we have here? Oh, we have Jennifer chiming in. Let me see if I can get that message for you. Oh, my messenger is going crazy here. She says, one of the hardest things about the lens change for parents is recognizing that in plan B, the kids' concerns hold equal weight to the parents. 
That's absolutely true. Um, I think too. And, you know, and that's the biggest game changer, you know, as far as communicating to the kid that not only are we listening to their concerns, we're giving them equal weight to our own. You know, that puts us in a whole different universe together. Um, And great things can happen from that. You know, and parents start to kind of freak out too. Well, what if in step two, when I tell the kid my concern, the kid doesn't care? You don't have to worry. You might not particularly care about theirs either. You're trying to, in step one, you're trying to model understanding another person's concern and taking it into account so you can request that back. You know, they don't have to care, but you're just trying to make sure that they are taking it into account just like you're taking theirs into account. And since you've modeled that in step, then you can make a request of that. The other thing that happens in step two, when kids are new to the model, once a a parent starts talking about their own concerns, kids start thinking, oh, here we go, I'm about to lose. Well, that's about all the time we have for today. The ending music does not want to play for me. But anyway, uh, we'll be back next month with another episode. Talk to you then.